Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Emily Bernard has written for The American Scholar since 2005, when we published her essay, Teaching the N-Word. She's written a lot of essays since then, including Scar Tissue, about being stabbed in a coffee shop 17 years ago, which starts off her new essay collection, Black is the Body. But I think Teaching the N-Word is my favorite essay, because you don't know where she's going to go, and you don't know if she knows either. It's an essay that proves its etymology, the French word essayer to try. By the end of it, Emily has tried on eight different ways of thinking about the N-word through a dozen interactions and settled on all and none of them without doing either the word's dark history or its defiant reclamation and injustice. That essayistic spirit, those questions, pervade her new collection, Black is the Body. She joins us from Vermont, where she lives and teaches, to sort through them. Thanks so much for joining us, Emily. Thank you very much. So this essay collection feels kind of special, especially because um, a lot of the essays in there were first published in our humble pages. And to me, a lot of the essays really seem like essays in the truest sense, in the way that Montaigne intended it, you know, beginning without knowing really where you'll end up. Um, You're not really advancing an argument in any of these essays. In a way, it seems like an extension of one of the things you wrote in the introduction, which was following the trail of your own ambivalences. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like you're ambivalent about the big picture structural ways that being black in America is hard. Yeah. Um, so what are you ambivalent about? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, maybe the answer is what am I not ambivalent about? But I think <laughs> in some ways, you know, uh, I wrote this book because Toni Morrison says that she writes the books she wants to read. But I think that's true for me. And it's also true that I wrote this book because I would like it to have a life in the classroom. When I've taught in the past, I teach the greatest hits, you know, African-American literature of the 19th and 20th centuries, mostly. And my at my first teaching gig, I had a student who came up to me after the semester was over and asked me if I realized that in every book we had read that semester, there had been a, a significant fatal, often, act of violence in every single book. And at that point, it was early in my teaching career, and I was so busy trying to prove myself as a you know real adult professor um, that I had really distanced my head from my heart and actually had completely overlooked that and, and not even spent a moment thinking about what that would feel like. 
that was a long time ago, but it's been in my mind for many years. And I started to compose these essays thinking about the stories that I didn't see out there. Um, stories that about race that I lived, that I didn't see represented. But, you know, I come from pretty ordinary circumstances, at least in, relatively speaking. So except for the opening... Um, there, there is, I think there are not a lot of dramatic events in the, in the book, but it's, it's true to who I am and to, I think how many people, how we all live, you know, we live in the nuances and we live in the margins and, and the crevices of our lives, you know, uh, we have big jobs or big concerns, but really these mundane, um, activities describe us just as much, if not more than, you know, the larger issues that we are concerned with or, so I think, um, the ambivalence about, what a black story should look like and should carry is that that's what inspired me to, to write the book. And I, yes, I found the book essays found a home at the American scholar. Cause I have the editor of all editors, who's of course, Bob Wilson, who helped me find my voice and really gave me a space to pursue the ambivalence as opposed to, you know, writing a lecture about race in some ways and telling people what it is. You know, I like to think the essays go against the grain and that I want the reader to laugh at things that, maybe we're not supposed to laugh at and to, you know, find maybe beneath certainties to find layers of questions that maybe are, I ho- I think, more compelling than, you know, easy answers. Yeah, questions is a pretty good way to describe a lot of the essays. And you mentioned Scar Tissue, of course, which is the first essay in the collection and the one where you write about being stabbed. And it wasn't a racially motivated crime, as far as you could tell. But it still, you know, caused a lot of trauma, including the internal stomach adhesions that linger from the initial wound. And in a way, like, I mean, there's so many metaphorical ways you can read scar tissue. And you do talk about scars over the course of the collection. Do you think that there's any sort of big picture metaphors to be drawn from this in, you know, the, I guess, the violence of the original Black American experience starting this whole mm. big snowballing collection. Right. I mean, yes. You know, I think uh, something happened that I talk about in the introduction. You know, at some point after maybe it was the second or third gurney that I ended up on, a surgeon said to me, you know, kind of confessed to me with great compassion that he didn't know, you know, why. There's no why to the question of these adhesions that kept plaguing me. But he could say with certainty that they would return, but also that I couldn't predict them and there's nothing I could do to prevent them. And at that moment, you know, I made a choice. You know, I could rail, kind of shake my fist at the world, which, of course, I think you do. But I realized, you know, I had to work with this wound, that there was just, I couldn't, you know, go through my life dreading and anticipating something I could not control. So better to work with it, better to try to make something productive out of it. And I, I yes, for me, it is... It is the metaphor, you know, of living black in this country. After my mother died, I found this trove of poetry that she left behind. And it it was one moment she wrote about having suffered, you know, the violence at the hands of white boys in the Jim Crow South when she was growing up. And she wrote about it over and over again. And I saw her wrestling with this incident, trying to figure out how to treat it, but also how to find a way to harness it and to make it useful and to make it beautiful. And... I learned that lesson from my mother, you know, who told stories as a way to pursue the questions, really, and to embrace ambivalence. You know, she was somebody with a wicked sense of humor and loved to find the funny in things that were, you know, serious. So it's an impulse that I certainly inherited. Um, 
And it goes right to, I think, the heart of the book. I, I wanted to start the book with a bang, bang and kind of get it out of the way, but also to hopefully demonstrate to the reader that, you know, this is what I'm willing to do to make myself vulnerable, to literally expose, expose my deepest wound. Yeah. I mean, so many of the essays are about how we communicate and how we not only just like internalize our own experiences, but communicate those experiences to other people. I'm thinking of the the essay Interstates, in which uh, your white Italian husband eats his way into the heart of your Southern family. Um, and you talk about, you know, some of the violent, ugly history behind the warnings that your family had given you about white men treating black women in abhorrent ways. But what's really interesting to me is the way that you contrast how these things are communicated, specifically how your dad talked to you about these things compared to how your grandmother mm -hmm. did or her stories did. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like to think the book is built on, around relationships, you know, and as such, um, you know, in the course of a conversation, we can go a lot of d in different directions. And I think... Um, and I think I was kind of born in that intersection. You know, my father, who was, had very strict views about life and about his daughter and how I should behave and the choices I should make. And my mother's family, there's a lot more fluidity. And they were just, to me, growing up, like fascinating contradictions. You know, like the fact that my grandmother was not a fan of the civil rights movement in some ways, like other black Southerners of her generation, you know. So I grew up learning things in history books and then watching my family live them out in really contradictory ways. But the fact that we could all exist in one family and have very different ideas about the relationship between black people, white people, black women, and white men, I think it really captures the contradictory way we, we all live. You know, there's no one story and it changes over time. My father obviously changed over time. He came to, and he found a, his own language his, to, to frame um, my relationship with John, you know, for him, after having made these, given me these warnings as an adolescent, by the time he comes to really love John, it makes sense, you know, because we have this same culinary passions, you know, Caribbeans and Italians. So he found a language, a vocabulary to, to make it make sense for him. You can change and you change through relationships, right? You love people and you want to catch up to where they are. Yeah, well, I mean, and what you said about sort of finding your own vocabulary, I think, is also really key. Um, and also defining and figuring out what blackness even means, because it means so many different things to different people, um, as you say, all the time. Um, and I wanted to ask sort of how you've seen blackness being constructed both in your own life and in your daughter's lives and in your dad's lives. Um, there's a really great scene in the title essay, Black is the Body, where your two daughters are watching TV and a commercial comes on about Black History Month and they begin talking about the difference between being black and being brown. And there's 11 in this scene talking about their identity and sort of where they fit into blackness and African-Americanness and Africanness. And you have a similar scene with your dad, who's from Trinidad. So, I mean, I mean, talk about how blackness is constructed in your family and in your experience. That was one of my favorite moments of their childhood. So I had to immortalize it. Um, you know, just watching them together, watching this television commercial, and suddenly this wonderful, pro, you know, profound line comes out of my daughter's mouth, you know, basically, yeah, we're brown, but they call us black. And it just unleashed for me a whole world of memories, what it was like for me to um, 
learn about my racial identity, which in, in my generation and in my circumstance, you know, growing up in the, in the slowly desegregating South, um, I knew early on that blackness was trauma. You know, I don't even remember when I learned that. But certainly our experience of living in the house, when we talk about the mundane, our mailbox kept getting mysteriously knocked over to the point where my father just had a stone mailbox built. And I don't remember what our conversation was about it, but every time, you know, I see that mailbox, and I've been home recently, I think, I think of that history, all that's contained in that my father literally putting down roots. We're not going to be chased out of here, neighborhood, you know. So, you know, here I sit. I, I am a product of that moment, and my parents... And, now when I think about it, what the courage it took to put your kids on a bus. I mean, now that I have children, I think about that. But my parents believed in the project of desegregation, and you had to put, you know, there's, it's not going to happen if you didn't put something on the line. So, you know, obviously I'm, I, you know, I benefited tremendously for, from all their courage. But those stories are very weighty, um, and I wanted to reject them a lot when I was a child. You know, I didn't want to be my life to be determined by this horrible history of, of slavery and racism. You know, I, I wanted to turn my eyes away and look at my teen magazines, you know, and imagine myself into a future where that wouldn't describe me. Um, and now I have children who were not born in this country, but of course now are black um, and think about themselves as black. So, you know, here they are and they're learning to embrace that, but it's also a process of invention. And always my relationships with them, I think, you know, they they didn't, it's not part of their bodies, whatever we carry, you know, whatever I carry. um, They they just were not born in that place. They were not born here, you know, in this country. And they were also not born in a world where they had to fear, you know, white racism. So the question I have, you know, as a parent, we wonder how we protect our children. And certainly as a parent of black children, to where, what, where's the line between preparing them for the dangers that are out there and in some ways inventing those dangers or, you know, calling them up? At the same time, the world out there is completely unpredictable. You know, I'm not the only parent of black children who thought her children were safe. But they have inherited a trove of stories. And now that they live black in this country... It's a story that's out there that they did not invent, but that claims them in a way and that they enjoy. But they have a different identity. And I really always want to preserve that in them. I mean, not only because they have a beautiful family in Ethiopia who actually we, you know, are in touch with. So they have a they have a, they have a really complex world and life ahead of them, figuring out, you know, where African identity ends and African-American identity begins. Yeah, that interplay between African and American is super interesting, especially if you bring your dad into the picture, Mm -hmm. who's from Trinidad. Mm -hmm. Um, And you talk about this moment in the same essay when when he said he became black and you said, my father took to blackness quickly, but Americanness not so much. Yeah. Um, and then I think he looks at you at one point and is like, where did this American child come <laughs> <Exactly>. from? Um, <laughs> but then you say later at the end of the essay, you em- embrace blackness and you say by black, I mean black, italicized, not African-American. And you reference your dad in that, mm. who's not American. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah, to me, you know, um, I like that we have these two terms, you know, this African-American, which feels like very a professional kind of term, you know. But it's also, you know, I'm always fascinated because it's 
it's also an aspiration. I think, you know, African-Americans, we long for, and that's also just historically true. I would say that since the inception of our presence in this country, you know, the more distant that we get from that African origin, the more longing. It's a, it's a matter of recuperation, but also invention. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so much was simply lost during the Middle Passage. But So I always think that it's represented maybe in the space between African and American. And for my father, blackness was, you know, the black power movement. And I think the difference in those terms that black, the term feels, one, really rebellious right now. You know, it sort of feels like a rebellion against the kind of professionalism of African-American. But it's also, to me, you know, it's a defiant term. There's something unforgiving of just a single syllable, nothing to soften it. It's just the slap of black. And for my father in particular, it was just very romantic, very vibrant. And he was on Fisk University campus watching all of the watching all of the courage. And when I was actually I talked to him a lot writing that essay and trying to get a sense of what blackness meant to him. And he said, Emily, you know, these people were so I mean, he said, you know, people were putting cigarette butts out on they were putting cigarettes on skin of my friends and my peers at school. And he said, you know, I just I don't even know if I would have had the courage. He was afraid of being deported, so he didn't take part in a lot of those demonstrations and the sit-ins. He, he said, I don't know, I would have had the courage, you know. And it was a moment of real connection between us because thinking about my father, who I feared for much of my life and his vulnerability and longing to be part of that, um, but also knowing that there were limitations of what he could do physically as a person because his, he was vulnerable in a, because he was not American. But, you know, my father, I think, was not alone in that he just had an ambivalent relationship to the to this new world. You know, he was here to be educated and to establish himself so that he could help his family. You know, so in some ways there was no romance about being in America. It was about work and education and progress and achievement. And you put everything aside for those ambitions that you were part of a larger, your own happiness was really not part of the deal. You know, you were there to for the family and for the generations. And he took that very seriously. So I want to say that Americanness for him was about duty, whereas blackness was about pleasure, you know? It was about just possibilities. I mean, I want to talk about that pleasure because it comes up in a different arena in your relationship with your husband, um, who is white. And you talk about how um, there's this great line where you say, we like racial difference to experience it and then discuss it. Uh, There are interracial relationships in which each party claims not to see racial difference. I don't understand these couples and consider their relationships fundamentally humorless. (laughs) Um, But you talk about, you know, wanting to find pleasure as well as pain in that racial Mm, difference and coming to understand that. So, I mean, there are funny elements of racial difference, mm-hmm. but then there are also very unfunny ones. Very true. Absolutely. And I think, you know, yeah, maybe it's not for everybody, but, you know, certainly I think for my husband, you know, we were sort of built for this, you know, built for, as you say, the pleasure and the pain. And, you know, I, I certainly see the um, the value in making other kinds of choices. I mean, I've had friends who found they just couldn't commit to the pain, you know, alienation from family the costs sometimes of having coming from different backgrounds, it, it can be difficult. And I, I understand that many people decide, you know, it's not worth it. Or they, they marry someone or they partner up with someone who comes from a similar tradition because it's about the tradition, you know. For us, yeah, it's just a source of real humor and pleasure for both of us. But as you say, there are parts of it that are painful. We were lucky in that both of our families were 
you know, very accepting. And as I write about John's family, you know, it, it was never a question. His mother was one of those, you know, central casting Italian-American women who just ruled the roost. And I, I'm pretty sure at some point early in our relationship, she just said to the family, Johnny's girlfriend is African-American and that's it. No discussion. <laughs> There's no, no, you know. And as opposed to my family where my father, as I said, had to really get his mind around what it was, what it would mean. I think a lot of that had to do with he just expected me to marry someone like him, you know. And for my mother, of course, there was haunted by a history and a history that preceded her. But it wasn't, I think, about forgetting that, but rather allowing for something else to be true. You know, we have such a heavy, serious hand when we come to often writing about race or talking about race, and that's important, but there's also joy. You know, there's also joy, and I I want people to feel that too. Well, and it also seems like that comes up in, I mean, similarly intimate but not romantic relationships like friendship, um, which you talk about a lot, about having white friends and black friends and navigating the complications of being an only black friend. But also you say at one point, um, this particular black friend, meaning you, thinks about race all of the time sometimes, but just as often not as all. I want to talk about it and I don't. I want my white friend to be aware of racism. And at the same time, I don't want to be reminded of racism. Mm -hmm. That's ambivalence, I think. (laughs) Absolutely. It is. (laughs) Well, I wanted to, even in that essay, you know, I think people often talk about, you know, of course, the racial empathy gap and, you know, the alarming statistics about um, how few white people have friends of another race. And you read the statistics and it looks really shocking. And every time I hear them delivered in a public venue, you know, gasping and, you know, head shaking. And I think, well, what, you know, it's real. Um, in, in a largely segregated America, of course, you're not going to have friends of other races. And for, you know, people, for African-Americans like me, we live in white and work in white environments. Of course, we have, you know, we have fr- friendships and professional relationships with white people as a matter of course. But if you are white, that is not necessarily true. And that is not necessarily your fault. So what I wanted to do in that essay, and even in the spacing of that, when Laurie says to me, you're my only black friend, I, I think I left, there's a, there's a sort of a section break. Because I wanted to, just to sit there, you know, without judgment and without head shaking. This is a reality of her life. And it's a mundane reality. It's not, you know, it felt like I wanted it to breathe. I wanted, I wanted it to breathe there. You're my only black friend. And I didn't want to paper it over, if you know what I mean, or follow it up and somehow excuse her or, or make it or be defensive or be... It just is. It's just a fact that should not come on the heels of, 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 of condemnation. Right. It's what you do with that fact. That's right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I like to think that the reason why I'm a teacher is because the people taught me with compassion. And w- when I made mistakes in the classroom, um, when I asked things born of kind of an ignorance, just lack of experience... I was greeted with a gentle education, and it's a model of mine for teaching. I mean, I remember sort of alluding to a moment in college when I used the word oriental, you know, not understanding at all, not even having any awareness of that, what was problematic with the history of that word. And a peer of mine at college, someone I didn't even know well, took me aside and explained that to me, you know, as opposed to pointing a finger at me and getting exasperated by my ignorance. And it's always stuck with me as a model for teaching because I have been taught. 
You can find links to the essays that we published in the show notes, but there are a whole host of other ones that you can only find in Emily Bernard's new book, Black is the Body, stories from my grandmother's time, my mother's time, and mine. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.